Welcome to Verso, a new arts and culture podcast from Philips. I'm your host, Beth Lissick. On each show, we bring together two guests from different parts of the art world to have an informal, socially distanced conversation about what they're thinking about right now. This episode's conversation is with two real lions of the jewelry world. Joanna Hardy, the fine jewelry expert who's also an author and lecturer, and the multi-award-winning master jeweler, Sean Lean. Thank you both so much for being here with me today. So you two know each other. We do. We've known each other for, um, we've known each other about 16 years, haven't we, Joey? Really? That long? <laughs> <laughs> we have. I mean, we were, we were trying to remember where we, uh, how we first met, but Probably that was because we were both in a pub together. We probably can't remember. Because <laughs> <laughs> you both have a very traditional craft background. Sean, do you want to talk about your beginnings? Yes. I mean, I, um, my story goes way back to school. I was actually, um, I was quite a rebellious little boy at school. I went to a very strict Roman Catholic school, which didn't really cater for the creatives. And it was a very academic school. And I, I obviously was a very creative child and teenager and was very, um, I was kind of very unsatisfied at school and wasn't learning the things I wanted to. So I kind of rebelled quite a, a bit I suppose you can still you can still see that in my work really I mean there's a rebellion in there and I wanted to do fashion and I was too young I was 14 years old I was too young to go to fashion school you know we agreed that I could go on to do a further education and leave the school and um, luckily there was a foundation course in jewelry design and manufacture and metalwork as well. It was a course that spanned over not just jewelry making, but sculpture and forming and forging as well as jewelry. And it was a year's course. And I thought, well, I'll do that for a year, get my head into the design ethos and then go on to do a fashion course. And I sat down at the bench to craft the piece that I had designed I don't know, there was an instant romance for me in the crafting and making of jewellery. There's something quite, and I'm sure Joey will, 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 will agree with me on this, there's something quite therapeutic about crafting and making jewellery. You go into a world of your own. It's, it's like painting. You can, it's like a beautiful form of meditation. Once crafting, I was totally absorbed by the concentration and the dedication and the detail in its crafting a piece and it took me somewhere else and then at the end of it when I realized I'd created this product and naturally through the longevity of the materials that I was working in like stones and gold my tutor said to me do you realize you've crafted something so beautiful that will be here for more than a hundred years and the romance of that I was sold. I just absolutely fell in love with jewellery and the engineering of it and the concentration and the detailing and the craft and then the romance, the heritage and history that one could be part of. And 
And that was it really. And then I began my journey and I did a year's foundation course and then went on to do a seven year apprenticeship in Hatton Garden with a very fine atelier that crafted beautiful high-end jewelry for royal families all over the world and for some of the most prestigious stores on Bond Street. And my training was very thorough, very classic, very traditional. My craft became the vehicle for me to then later on express concepts and new ideas and break boundaries that I went on to achieve with working with Alexander McQueen. And Joanna, did you have a, a similar feeling of um, a meditative quality about, about working with jewelry and working with stones and working with metal? Or was it a, a different experience? <laughs> I'm afraid my first experience with, with jewellery wasn't so poetic as, uh, as Sean's. <laughs> if truth be known, do you know, sometimes, sometimes you don't choose a profession, it chooses you. And mm. I, I had no idea that I would end up where I am today, not in the slightest inkling that that was what I wanted to do. But when I was really young, seven, eight years old, and my godmother was Margaret Biggs, and she was the first woman to pass her gemology exam in 1923 with distinction. And she actually became the first woman to become president of the National Association of Goldsmiths. And she had a shop in Farnham in Surrey. And she and her sister both lived in this Georgian house. And she had in her lounge these amazing Georgian glass cabinets with these amazing geodes of minerals and amethysts and malachite and um, rhodochrosites and all sorts of amazing gems. So you can imagine a young girl walking into this grand room with all these amazing stones it, you know, that magic just absolutely I was it was oozing into me it was like osmosis uh, without me probably realizing it and you know we used to have tea there and so when I went to school and I could do jewelry it sort of well uh, that seemed to be almost it had chosen me rather than me choosing that. But I had no idea that I would end up being, you know, a few years later, a diamond dealer in Antwerp. I mean, <laughs> that was quite extraordinary. But yeah, so I think I have a lot to thank my, my godmother for, Margaret Biggs. I then, I then wasn't very good at making jewellery. I think for me, being at the bench, I, I just knew that wasn't for me. Um, and I knew... But it was a fantastic training to understand the complexity of what is needed to be a great goldsmith. And I realized I wasn't going to be one of those. So I worked in Hatton Garden as a Saturday girl. Then I worked full time in Hatton Garden as a Saturday girl, selling, selling gold chains off reels. I mean, it was just mind-blowingly uh, numbing and very uninspiring. So what year was that, Jerry? I'm intrigued. It would have been um, early, late 70s, early 80s. Ah, oh, because I got down, I started working in Hatton Garden in 86. I was just a few years before you. Yeah, just a few years before. Oh, I was going to hope that our paths had crossed in Hatton Garden and we didn't know well, it. Because I remember those shops that you're talking about. Well, I worked at John Simon. That's where I, I worked. I know, yes, I remember that. Cedric Lauder. Cedric Lauder was... was was the owner. <laughs> yes, I know. I knew Cedric. And it was opposite Holtz. 
Yes, I know. Well, I was number 22. You were number 22? Yes. So oh, well, that that's was... right. You were next door to me almost. Yeah, Ooh. exactly. <laughs> Hang on a minute. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't 22? Wasn't that John Simon was downstairs? Because we had a bunch of setters upstairs. Yeah, that's where I was. I was upstairs of 22. So we were the top, we were the atelier on the top, or the very top of the building. So we were English traditional jewellery at the very top of 22. Oh, and was there a, a polisher in between? Yes, there was a polisher on the first floor. Yes. We yes. Were, Sean, we were in the same building, for goodness sake. Oh, my God. Do you know, as you were just talking about that, I thought, I know exactly where she's talking about. And we've never discussed that before, have we? Oh, that's amazing. Wow. I, 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 was, I remember that being probably the same as you, Sean, in, in, in terms of the jewellery, the making of it. For me, it was the stones. I was just drawn into that, that natural world. You know, I just couldn't believe that these came out of the earth. I mean, you both are creatures of the city. You live in London, and yet you're very entwined with the natural world, you know? And can you talk about that, your relationship with nature and how much inspiration you get from it? Do you know what, Joanna, it's absolutely lovely to hear you say the story about your godmother and the, the minerals and the gemstones. And as you were saying that story, you know, I remembered something. So my next door neighbour to where, we, where I grew up as a child, she had in her hallway this a most amazing stag head with its antlers, all very grand in the hallway. And I used to go into her house at the age of five up until about the age of 12 and stand underneath that stag head with the antlers and be absolutely fascinated by it. And I recently went into that house. They invited me in after all these years, I'd been back to the air and they said, oh, come in and have a cup of coffee. And the stag is still there. And it's really funny. I looked at it recently and I thought, maybe that's where the subconscious of the horns came from and the tusks came from, from all my work. Because when I first started working with McQueen, when I trained, when I, when I was serving my apprenticeship in Hatton Garden, above where you were working, Joey, which we've just confirmed, <laughs> um, <clears throat> the works I was working on there were very classic, very beautiful, refined, articulated jewellery, very high gemstones, very traditional and classic, but of which I loved and I still create pieces like that today. But when I first started working for McQueen and I had this freedom and he'd given me this amazing platform where I could actually create what I wanted to create and I could explore new materials and new scale and my my go-to was these horns these tusks and it was for the hunger show in 94 95 where i created this really beautiful elegant long refined form of a silver tusk earring and every model wore one and for me there was this strong identification with that the strength was in the simplicity of the form but it was a really powerful statement it was this really gorgeous elegant tusk and the models all wore one earring and there was this it, there was almost like this sophisticated punk to it but there was this celebration of nature this celebration of an iconic natural form and from there everything grew and then for me there was this understanding of the strength and the fragility in nature 
And I think growing up as a young boy, there was this, you know, there was this vulnerability in me, but this ferocity as well. And as a teenager as well, and like Joey, you know, I grew up in North London and I remember the Brixton riots. I remember the Finsbury Park riots where I grew up. And, you know, there's an element of, I don't know, there's an element of survival in London. And as a young boy, I had that. And when I had an opportunity working with Lee McQueen to have a self-expression of my own artistry or an expression of how I wanted or to put my feelings into jewellery, nature was really the first thing I went to because of, as I said earlier, because of its strength and fragility. It was a real, it was a real reflection of myself. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why there was such a harmony with me and my work. And for Lee as well, I think he had that same ethos. You know, he had, he was vulnerable too. And I think he found strength in structure and the balance of, you know, the balance of in nature, like the delicacy of feathers and how beautiful they are, but yet the strength and how a bird can soar through the sky. You know, this really mystical juxtaposition of materials that that is always a great subject for fashion and for jewellery. And Joey, I'm sure you'll agree with me, jewellers over centuries have used nature as, as, a, as a subject matter. So Absolutely, it's, yeah, yeah. I wanted people to question jewellery. I, I was tired of jewellery being the accessory to fashion. You know, I wanted to fuse jewellery and fashion. So the, the question was, was the garment the accessory or was the accessory the garment? And you saw that a lot of my work with Lee, a lot of the pieces were half metal, half fabric, you know? And I think, you know, one always has to remember that, that jewelry was around before fashion. You know, jewelry was, was being formed by the Neanderthals many, many years ago before they had clothes or before they had fashion, they were adorning themselves with trophies and talismans and, and, for me, I have this deep-rooted passion for jewellery and I like to be provocative with it. I like to create shapes that are provoking and questioning, but ultimately I do like to create jewellery that is elegant and refined and empowering. And when a person wears my jewellery, I want them to feel confident. I want them to feel elegant and graceful, but I also want them to feel fearlessness and courage and to stand out from the crowd to provoke and to raise questions. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk now about Flawless? So we have collaborated with Philips. We have curated this um, beautiful 21 piece collection to celebrate 21 years of the brand. Um, I have been, or should I say the house, we have produced a book, monograph of my life's works to date. And Joanna wrote the first chapter, beautifully written. And Claire Wilcox wrote the second chapter and Vivian Becker has wrote the third. And it's a book that celebrates the fusion of my work from the heritage and the craftsmanship that I was taught for the very classic side of my world to the 20 years of working with Alexander McQueen and then there will be some of the most important bespoke high-end jewellery pieces I made for example the diamond evening glove that I made for Daphne Guinness and all those wonderful pieces and for me 
you know, Philips have always been, they've always been a leader in contemporary design in every form. And I think within my medium and my arena within jewellery, I've, I've always been considered a contemporary and one that tries to push the boundaries, not alone in design, but in craft and material. And I think to have all my work displayed with Philips and be partnered with them because our ethos is the same, is such a perfect marriage. What is exciting to both of you about jewelry right now? I mean, Sean, you've pushed so many boundaries in your career. And I, I wonder if there's other, are there still boundaries to push or what do you, what do you see out there that excites you? Uh, I think there's always boundaries to push because as we evolve as, as people and civilizations, technology evolves and technology brings new forms of creating jewelry, new ways of designing jewelry, new ways of, crafting materials etc i think with sustainability and traceability and re and recycling i think we're going to see some really interesting materials and methods of making jewelry and what jewelry may become in the future not to say that gold and precious stones and gemstones will not be used because of course they will they'll be celebrated for years to come hopefully and they'll become more rarer but um yeah, I see that. I see it, especially with Central St. Martin students. There's, there's this real interest in using alternative materials and new materials to kind of create body adornment. So we'll see. It's interesting. It's an interesting world. I mean, it's all about the craftsmanship. It's, yes, you can, exactly. You, just because something's antique doesn't mean to say it's it's nicely made. You know, you can get horrors that are antiques and you get horrors that are contemporary. It's all about the, the, the craftsmanship. And that can be whether it's in titanium, plastic, resins, metals. It doesn't matter what it is. It's how it's been executed. And I think what is really exciting now is that uh, people are uh, wanting to be more individual. Uh, and I think that they are more uh, aware of other materials and other stones that it's not just rubies, emeralds, pearls, sapphires, diamonds. There's a whole other world out there of beautiful stones. Do you know, it's so funny you saying that, Jerry, because I've seen with my clients recently through COVID that obviously everybody's not going out to as many events as they used to, but there have been some events. And my clients have been coming to me to purchase something new for an event that they are going to go to or a dinner. And it's lovely to see there's this real celebration. They've come to me and they're buying the biggest and the boldest because they're having these rare occasions where they're going out and they want their jewelry to speak volumes because it's a rare occasion and it wants to, they want it to reflect who they are, like the good old days. Well, wearing something different engages people in a conversation about that jewel, about how much they like looking at it and what does it mean to them and it, it mm. is another level of conversation i was thinking about that with covid and and just people kind of reassessing and looking at themselves and maybe it makes sense that maybe yeah people want to come out now and be more bold or they want to provoke conversations because they've been sitting home by themselves or with exactly. their spouses or something <laughs> <laughs> they need to talk to somebody else um, earrings earrings are yes. doing very well at the moment because of all the zoom calls <gasps> Well, thank God we're a nearing house. That's working for us perfectly. Thank you so much. It's been so fun talking to both of you today. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Joanna. 
thank you, Beth, and thank you, Joanna. Sean, I love coming here and I love you. And thank you, Beth, for making this all happen. And it's been great. Thanks for tuning into Verso, an arts and culture podcast from Philips. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. Bye for now. <laughs>